Welcome to For the Love of Yoga. In this podcast series, we explore yoga in all of its deepest dimensions. May these words nourish you. Today, we're going to discuss, practice, and how to effectively structure our practice so that we are nourishing ourselves with all the nutrients, so to speak, in the spiritual diet. So today's discussion is really about how to holistically practice. What are the different types of training and what methods suit our disposition at this moment? So we're definitely going to be talking about a broad variety, a range of different methods, and hopefully something will resonate with you today. But for now, I invite you to just, as you focus on the breath, take stock of where you are now, spiritually speaking. Just quietly reflecting on the journey that you've walked so far, the place that you are now, and the journey ahead. And as you feel the soft flowing of the breath, gliding up the nasal passageway into the belly, flowing softly out of the nasal passageway, as the inhale melts into the exhale, exhale into the inhale, maybe you're being drawn into deeper and deeper levels of insight and reflection. Perhaps bringing the hands softly over the heart and bowing the head. With humility, we approach this practice. With curiosity and with an open mind, we experiment and we explore. Softly allow the hands to fall back to the lap, opening the eyes and arriving here and now together in this space. It's always a joy to see you all. So in this meditative state, let's try to remain focused on the breath as we discussed today. So what I wanted to share is I've been asked a lot how to structure my day spiritually, so to speak. Uh, what to do? What are the spiritual practice? What, what does training look like? And what are we training for? So we have already talked um, at length together about the purpose of spiritual practice and the pitfalls along the path and all the discussions surrounding practice. But today, I want to talk about the actual act of practice and practice itself. We're going to talk a little bit about how to structure your asana sequence on your own. So pen and paper might be handy if you're looking to figure out asana sequences. Um, some of you are very interested in meditation, and we'll talk about that in different styles of meditation. But before we begin, there's one very important point to stress, and that is you should not practice to become spiritual. Because to do so implies that something in you is lacking or that you need to go out and get something. 
So there can be a trap with practice where you think you need to do something in order to get to some place or achieve something or attain something. So this is one of the pitfalls on spiritual practice because you are already perfect just as you are. You are that perfect attainment. It's just that you're not aware of it or you forget from time to time. And so the purpose of practice is not to become spiritual, but to express a fundamental spirituality that you already are. So to open today, I need to stress that we do not practice to become spiritual. We practice because we are spiritual. So whatever practice you are engaging in, whatever style of practice you have, and uh, perhaps the style that you will cultivate after our discussion today, bear in mind that practicing it is just reminding you of your own true nature. So that practice should resonate with a kind of authenticity. So perhaps you're doing hatha yoga and you're doing an asana. It should feel like, hmm, this is right. I should be doing this. There's a, there's a rightness or a authentic sincerity to this practice. If it doesn't feel that way, then it's probably not the practice for you. So if you're sitting there counting on rosary beads, doing a mantra, maybe it's not the mantra for you, or maybe it's not the practice for you, because that practice, that particular way of approaching the divine, doesn't resonate with your particular dispositions. So you need to align yourself with the practice that best suits your dispositions and more than that, best suits your needs at any given point of your spiritual journey. So that's something to look out for. There's always the litmus test of authenticity, as I like to call it. Does this resonate with me? Does it feel right? Secondly, I need to point out that practice today might not look like practice tomorrow. And God forbid it looks like practice 10 years from now. Um, that's because as you go along the spiritual path, your dispositions will naturally change. And hopefully they will, because the point of spiritual practice is ultimately transformative. Bringing you back into your authentic nature, you shirk off layers and layers of yourself that no longer serve you or that you find to be illusory. And as a result, you know, maybe your emotional faculties develop, maybe your physical faculties develop. And as you change, you get drawn into different styles of practice. And I'll introduce you to a few today. So you can imagine there is right now in Silicon Valley, um, someone getting interested in spirituality, but they're interested in Buddhist philosophy and Vipassana style meditation. Because they are very rational and maybe have a masculine energy, they're coding all day, they're attracted to the uh, a little bit more uh, heady type of philosophy that the Buddha expounded. And their version of approaching this divine is through Vipassana med meditation, which is just follow the breath, quiet, you know, nothing fancy, nothing energetic is happening. Um, very simple, very direct. If you took that person to a kirtan center, meaning a place where they chant the names of God, they will likely walk away in disgust. Because all that stuff is a little bit too uh, pomp. It's too much pomp and ceremony. There's too, too many flowers. What are all these goddesses and goddesses garlanded and flowers and everyone's singing and crying and they're excited. It's all a little too emotional. So they might not want to engage in that practice. Now, if they are sincere in their meditation practice, lo and behold, two years from now, from their meditation, their emotional facu faculties might have deepened. They might have become a little bit more connected to their heart. And then they are now at the Bhakti Center singing, chanting, Hare Krishna, you know. The reverse is also true. The very emotional and more devotional soul might start off doing kirtan, chanting, might start off in a church saying the Jesus prayer, but through touching the divine, they suddenly become interested in the philosophy around the divines. They start to read philosophy textbooks and then they want to meditate. You know, then they want to sit and do the vipassana stuff. So notice that what you're doing today might not be what you're doing tomorrow. So there has to be a degree of flexibility in your practice. Now, the third disclaimer, this is going to absolutely contradict the thing I just said. But the third disclaimer is when you find true practice, very soon you will be tempted to leave that practice for something else that's more novel or more interesting. So it is too common 
since we live in a world of like, there's too many options. That's the problem. You know, if you grew up a problem and a blessing, but if you grew up in a Zen monastery, a little child in Tibet, maybe a Vajrayana Buddhist monastery, you know, you would wake up in the morning, 3.40 AM, go and chant the sutras in the Buddha hall, take a nice bath in the cold water. And that would be your path. You know, it's very unlikely you'll become a Sufi. It's very unlikely you'll change your name and practice dervish dancing. No, you're going to wear the orange robes and your whole life will be devoted to the Buddha. And it's a phenomenal path. Everything you need is in that path. If you were raised in the Himalayas, close to yogis, you might turn into a Hatha yogi, you know, and very unlikely you'll become a Christian from Southern India. And when you're enlightened, when you finally figure it all out, you'll realize it's all interchangeable. But in times of yore, your path was a little more locked in. You were more in an institution or a culture that had a path for you. But now, you know, the globalized scheme of things, we, we're confronted with a lot of options, especially with the advent of the internet, all that stuff. We have all the books and we can engage in any path that calls to us. This is a blessing, but also a danger. It's a blessing insofar as you on your path are reading from other paths to compare and contrast your own discoveries in your unique path with the other paths that are around you. So whether or not you're practicing yoga or Christianity, you should recognize that Om vibration is the same as the Amen or the Amen in the Christian church. Um, you should recognize similarities, but not because you're practicing all the paths, but because all the paths are true and are legit and express the same fundamental truth in different ways. So insofar as you're um, curious, that's good. Insofar as you're reading, and I encourage reading every scripture, insofar as you're doing that to compare, contrast, and consolidate your own personal discoveries, that's good. And so I can say on a level of theory, it's good to have a, a broad range, a, a big grasp on many practices. But on the level of practice, it can be dangerous to run around. Um, and even in the Yoga Sutra, it says, don't dig so many shallow holes, dig one deep hole. Because here's the catch. If you do find an authentic practice, it starts to corrode your ego. So if you're actually doing real spiritual practice, your concepts of who you think you are and what you think the world is start to crumble. And so it's not your fault. There's a natural survival mechanism that kicks into gear where the ego recognizing that it's threatened by your practice um, tries to cajole you away from that practice. Um, and it won't do so by saying spirituality is bad. The ego is more tactful than that. It knows you like spirituality. So it will come in the guise of that. It will say, okay, let's go do this other practice now. And the moment that starts to become good, you go, oh, let's go do the other one now. And it turns out at the end of this year, you'll find yourself spread out across a variety of different practices, spread so thin that you're unable to really develop in any particular way. So note the tendency to have too many books. I want to talk. But note, note the like feeling when you're reading a book, you're one third through it, and then you've bought four more. Watch out for having books on your shelf that you haven't read. This is very common for anybody ascending to the spiritual path because you get curious and curiosity is really good. But you, in that curiosity, get caught up here and do a lot of armchair occultism. Um, and then, you know, you'll do this for about two years and then you'll put it aside, you'll get bored, you'll go on with your life, you know? And then maybe 30 years from now, you'll find those books again and be like, oh yeah, I was sort of into spirituality when I was 20-ish, you know? Ah, you'll be a charming dinner guest. That's one thing. You know, as you go through your life, people will enjoy talking to you because you know stuff. But the problem is it's, it's all up here at best. You know, it's not real practice. So beware of spreading yourself thin over too many different practices. So notice that those two are kind of contradictory. Um, when in doubt, the latter is more true. So I'm, I'm more inclined to enforce the latter than the former. And the former is to say, be flexible, allow your spirituality to change. Yes, true, but that must be from the guidance of your deeper self. And that's only accessible to you after your practice has matured and deepened. So in the beginning, watch out for any urge to jump ship. Cool. So that being said, these are the disclaimers. Let's go into the practice itself now. So what ship 
to sail on? And uh, what should this look like? What should your day in the life of spirituality look like? Um, so that's what we're going to talk about today. How do we choose a path? How do we um, stick to that path? Um, so the first thing I want to say is that it's important to choose the right hole to dig from the beginning because your stickability to the path is in large determined by how well that path resonates with you. I would say don't worry about this too much because you will, despite yourself, be drawn into those things that are right for you. So finding yourself in this discussion, for instance, or a book will show up, you know, at your doorstep, Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now is here when you most needed it. And that will take you to Jindu Krishnamurti and that will take you to the Course in Miracles, whatever. Like inevitably, like a moth into flame, as Ram Dass says, you know, as the tides with the moon, you'll be drawn into the path. So you don't have to worry about it too much. When you get there, though, there needs to be something in you that recognizes that, okay, this is it. And usually we have that. Usually we have this feeling like, ah, yes, I found it. It might be in the asana. It might be during a pranayama or something. You're like, this is it. So be alert for that. It's, it can be subtle. It can be like a whiff of a fragrant rose or something. It can be very subtle. Try not to phrase it in terms of like, okay, this is my path. This is my purpose. This is my way. This is my love. Like those words are a little too, um, I don't know, dramatic. They're a little too like, they put too much pressure on you to find your path, your love, your way. Those words are too big, you know, like do what you love. Okay, what do I love? You know, that's a hard thing to put on anybody, especially today. So instead, I'll say, let the word be interest. What are you interested in or what excites you? What makes you curious? So notice that curiosity when it comes. Now, it's important that your practice is holistic. So in the sense that your diet, you know, you can have too much of a good thing. You know, it's good to have vegetables, but if you just have vegetables and, you know, it's, it's hard to say when you're, when you're a yogi, all you eat is fruit and vegetables and nuts. So this is not a very good analogy for me. But I guess you need the rice and the kitchari, you know, you've got to have the mung beans. And there's a lot of stuff that goes into a good diet. Each of those things are good, but in isolation, they can be harmful if the others are neglected for the sake of that one thing. So that being said, let's go to the Yoga Sutra now in the second of the four books in the Yoga Sutra. And just a little bit of background for those of us who are new to this philosophy. The Yoga Sutra is a compilation of about 190 aphorisms that emerged somewhere between 500 BCE and 500 AD. It's kind of a broad historical range, and I date it to about 200, uh, 150 BCE. The sage Patanjali, who may have well been a fictional character and a group of writers, you know, have all heard the theory about Shakespeare not actually being one person, being many persons put under titles, something like that. So Patanjali put together this text, and it's not inventing yoga. Patanjali isn't coming up with yoga. In fact, in the Yoga Sutra, it relies on a lot of uh, kind of like preconceived notions about yoga to really get the gist of the Yoga Sutra. It's kind of like if I said Santa Claus, I trust that you all know what I'm talking about. You know, Coca-Cola has been effective in putting that image in almost everybody's mind of the white and red jovial, big-bellied kind of person. So I can say that. I can say Santa Claus, and I don't have to define it because you all know what I'm talking about. Similarly, the Yoga Sutra is like that. It uses words without explaining it just because they think, you know, you kind of, kind of already know. Now, the beauty of the Yoga Sutra, the Sadhana Pada, is the second book of four books. The first one, Samadhi Pada, um, is all about the theory, you know, what, what are we trying to do? Samadhi, what is, what is that? You know, what is, what is that specialized technique? But in the second book, we talk a lot about fundamentals of practice, yoga practice. So we'll go there today. We'll go into the Samadhi Sadhanapada of the Yoga Sutra. And I just want to tease out some of the more important points. The first one is that any one way is sufficient in of itself. So now this is going to be contradictory because the next thing I'm going to tell you is you're going to need a variety of different ways. But before I do that, I just want to say to you that every one way is a perfect way in of itself. And in the Yoga Sutra, they do that. They, 
include some practices as part of a holistic scheme, but they also stress that that practice in its, its own right can do it for you. So this is confusing because I just said, have a healthy, holistic diet. Don't just eat one thing. But in the Yoga Sutra, it says one thing can do it. It can. But you really got to do the hell out of that thing. You know, you got to be so good in that thing. You have to so resonate with it, so be devoted to it and practice it so well in its true essence that it does it for you. I think it's better to hedge our bets. It's better to do um, a more holistic approach. And the holistic approach I'm suggesting is you are not a one-dimensional being. There are many uh, dimensions to your life. There's a physical dimension, an emotional dimension, an intellectual dimension, um, an interpersonal dimension with other people, your relationships, an intrapersonal dimension, you with yourself. There's all of this stuff going on. I want to suggest to you that each of these dimensions require a specific spiritual practice. So there isn't just one spiritual practice. Divide yourself into, okay, niche the physical being, niche the emotional being, niche the um, intellectual being. What are the needs of each of those layers of niche? If I feed one and ignore the others, niche's spirituality will be uh, nutrient deficient or niche as a being will be malnourished, so to speak, or worse, imbalanced. So it can happen that people become a little too much one or the other. So I'm just going to throw this out there. A lot of Hare Krishna people are batshit crazy. They're just, oh my God, what is going on there? And you know, that, that is the, the corruption of the form because if you go very deep into that path at, at the exclusion of other paths, there, there's a risk of over-sentimentality. You know, it's a very dualistic path. So um, the, the devotional path works best. And we, you know, we had a class on devotional. You know, I'm a very big proponent for that path. So um, that's my discount. I, here's my, my bhajan machine, you know. I love the path of devotion. I was raised in it. But... If you go very deep in it at the exclusion of other parts, you set up this dualistic relationship between you and this being. Suddenly, you disempower yourself and you empower this being. Um, you start to see things in this external context and it can cause you to be susceptible to cult leaders, you know, because they come and then you're already used to this dualistic form of, um, you know, Ishvara Pranidana, devotion, devotion. So cult leaders come and they have their way with you, you know. Um, worse, you start to become dogmatic um, because it's so emotional. You start to, you know how it is like when you, you're in love with someone, it's your partner and you're like, this is the best partner in the whole world. And my partner is better than yours because she's my partner. Moms do it all the time with your children, right? They go to the schoolyard and they're like, this is my kid and my kid is the best kid. That happens. That's natural. That's part of the, the way of the heart. It's part of being emotional. It's even required. It's required that you, you know, in the path of devotion at its best, you take your natural human tendencies, which is, I want this, I want that, and you redirect it to God, to divinity. So you say, I want pleasure. So I want God, and I'll find pleasure through God, you know? So this possessiveness that your ego has is good. Use it in devotion. I want my Krishna. I want my Radha, you know? But the danger there is you start to say, only Krishna works. Everything else sucks. This is the only path. In Kali Yuga, Kirtan is the only way to do it. You know, you become very dogmatic. This happens to the Christian faith, the Hare Krishna people. Any devotional practice, you'll notice this tendency. So if you become too far in that, that's the risk. What about the other way around, though? You've met, everybody has met the overly pedantic jnani, we call it. The jnani is a philosopher, an intellectual. Um, they're often very self-important. After all, in the jnana philosophy, you are that. You are the divine. Atman is in you. There aren't any gods. Everything is maya. Everything is illusion. It's all emanating from the one consciousness that is you. So, you know, you can become a little detached from the world, a little cold and unfeeling and very, you know, icy in the head and it's all analytical then you can become condescending and, and dog, not dogmatic in the Hare Krishna sense where you're overly sentimental, but dogmatic in the Jnana sense or the Advaita Vedanta sense in which you look down on other paths because they're too pedestrian for you. Yours is the high philosophy. 
you know? So look, there are, diff- there are imbalances in both corners. So if you, and, and look at the, oh man, California, probably the best example of overdeveloped physical practices, underdeveloped energetic, emotional, mental, and you know, meditative practices. You have yogis that can do amazing asana here in the West. You know? You'll see the pincha mayur asana, the poses are beautiful, but then they're driving home from the yoga studio and they're cussing everybody. They're fighting, they're, they go home and they fight with their wives and husbands and children just the asana this is not making them more spiritual um and that's even though they, they're fit and they're healthy their face glows with radiance they'll still condescend to you at the party when they find out that you're not vegan you know um that's the problem it's like there are, there are ways in which you can look like you're developing spiritually but you're only um it's like going to the gym and only working out one arm you know, it will be really awkward for you if you have one big arm and you're walking around with scrawny other limbs, you know? Um, so that's the thing. See yourself as a multifaceted being. The complexity of you is just, oh, it's, it's, and it is true that at certain times of your life, one dimension will express itself a little more prominently than those other dimensions. That's kind of what I was talking about earlier. Right now, you might be called to practice um, a devotional path, chanting Hare Krishna, because right now, maybe your emotional side needs more nourishment. Maybe, you know, in your life, you, you didn't get that love from the parents that, you know, were trying their best. They did their best, but they couldn't give you the love that you needed. And so now you're finding it uh, singing bhajan and kirtan. That's important. It's important to honor that. Maybe you weren't given structure. Like you, were in, you went to church and you asked mom, why do they eat the wafer and drink the wine? Why does the priest wear that color? And you asked about things, but your intellectual curiosity wasn't satisfied. They didn't have the answers for you. They were just like, just, just do it. Just put the wafer in your mouth. It's Eucharist, you know, sacrament, sacrament. Just, you know, and maybe you had that kind of upbringing. And so now you're interested in philosophy structure so honor where you're at and what you know what dimension needs to be expressed but never forget that there are other dimensions too so to tease the kind of theory from the yoga sutra the theory of practice is this your practice must be holistic and in the yoga sutra it suggests an eightfold path so this is the valuable thing there are eight limbs in the practice of yoga they call it uh, ashtanga yoga eight limbs this is different from patabi joy's ashtanga yoga but this is um the yoga sutra's recommendation for practice there are eight things that you gotta do um there's a way to look at this where it's like a ladder you do thing one and then you do thing two and then you're at three and then you're at four there's some value to this some people say all must be done at once you know, the Buddhists have a wheel. They call it the Dharma Chakra. And the Buddhists have the same yogic structure. It's called the Eightfold Path. So in, in Buddhism, the four noble truths are one, uh, life is suffering. Two, desire is the cause of suffering. Three, there is a way out of suffering. And four, here's the way. Eight things to do. Right action, right view, right speech, all that stuff. And it's a wheel. So not one is done uh, at any given time, they're all done together. Now, I'm, I'm going to take a little liberty here. You'll have to forgive me. I'm going to kind of, you know, break the structure up of the traditional Ashtanga yoga and maybe move some stuff around um, just to meet the needs of, I think, our current, current uh, scheme, if you'll let me. So I just want to, I want you to know that I'm about to depart from scripture a little bit now and kind of inject some of my own stuff in here, which I'm always quite hesitant to do. So here's what, first thing I'll suggest. We all need to have the first thing, first and foremost, asana practice. You know, and it doesn't have to be asana. It can be tai chi or uh, martial arts. So if you're interested in kung fu or or wing chun or, um, you know, those arts are themselves yoga. You know, the history of martial arts is Bodhidharma, the sage, came over from India, brought some of the yoga over, and it was developed into its martial form by Tibetan Shaolin temples and that kind of thing. So martial arts is all about the movement of energy through the body. Tai Chi is about the movement of energy through the body. 
Um, Sufi dancing to an extent, though I'm not too versed in that path to be able to speak intelligently about it. But the whirling dervishes, that's sort of a physical energy movement thing too. You'll notice though, these practices, they're not just exercise. You know, it's not just, you can't just like run or go to the gym. You can't gym your way into spirituality. You know, these physical practices, I'm calling them asana with intention. I'm not saying, oh, you need to have a physical regimen to be healthy. In fact, I encourage you to do so, like go to the gym as often as you can, because that way you do the stuff that, you know, other people do and you can stay grounded. You don't fall, you know, go into this lofty tower of spirituality where you are no longer like anyone else. It's important to jog and go to the gym and play basketball. So as often as possible, do that. Um, be physical and engage in the world. But the physical practice I'm, I'm recommending now is asana. It's a very specific kind of esoteric movement. Um, and there are many kinds, Kung Fu, Tai Chi. And I, of course, can only speak about Hatha Yoga or asana, because that's my path. So I will in asana, and a lot of you are practitioners of asana, I will here suggest that you start an asana practice first. So your journey in spirituality should start here in the asana practice. I have three reasons. The first is um, concerned with the, the chakras. It is very common in our spiritual community to have hyper-developed upper chakras without any grounding. So it's common that people have ecstatic experiences. They do some shrooms or something. They see God or they're meditating and they're like, oh, I'm in the celestial realms, but they're still assholes, you know, because they're unable to integrate what happened there with their life. So there are two things happening in spirituality. On one hand, you're being elevated, but on the other hand, you're bringing what you found up there back. The Buddha was very careful to say enlightenment wasn't the end. Enlightenment's not the goal. Nirvana is the beginning. You know, you get to Nirvana and then your life starts because then you can be of service in the world. You know, you can chop wood and carry water. Uh, yeah, Nick says, I totally resonate with that, connecting my practice with my regular life. Yeah, a lot of us have that disconnect. And in the beginning, um, a lot of that is due to um, a root chakra imbalance. So we're not in our bodies enough. So we have these experiences in our energy, in our mental body, um, but we cannot bring them into this world. So I just want to offer this world once, you know, when you look at this world through spiritual sight, what you will see is many different divergent forms of energy congealing to form matter. So matter is a dense form of energy, as Einstein pointed out in his unified field theory and all that. But it is because it's so dense, it's our consensus reality. You know, we are very subjective, energetic and mental landscapes, but we have a pretty quote-unquote, objective physical landscape because it's the densest form of energy. So that being said, um, it isn't easy to concretize energy. It's, it's, a, it's a real spiritual feat to be able to focus, you know, because focus is bringing energy together to a single point. It's really hard to, quote-unquote, manifest, which is to actually, you know, put in the work or create the habits to bring something into your life, to bring abundance to bring health. These are all valuable goals in the life of spirituality. In fact, if you didn't have the money, you're not going to be able to buy your mala beads. You know? You're going to need to buy certain things like a harmonium or um, you're going to need to pay rent so you can practice safely in your house. So you're going to need to have money. You're going to have to be financially secure in your spiritual life and you're going to need to have health. So the ability to have health and financial well-being um, is about the root chakra and your ability to bring energy and ideas into the world. So this is the foundation. Without this kind of foundational work, even if you go very far in your spiritual practice, it will ultimately, since it's built on shaky ground, either crumble or lead to further imbalances. Asana practice grounds you. So I recommend... It's mandatory if you're on this spiritual path to at least do 20 minutes of asana a day. Um, so, you know, invest in a yoga mat. It's nice to have a mat, you know, it's like a place to go and do it. Um, and go and do your asana 20 minutes. If, you know, for those of you that are very serious about your practice, it's recommended you work this up to about an hour a day. 
So have about an hour a day of asana practice. Um, so let's talk about what that's going to look like. Oh, before that though, another two reasons I forgot to say. The first reason is the root chakra. You want to develop a strong root chakra so you can have finances and wealth, which will further support your spiritual practice. And asana is good at doing that. The second though, um, Dr. Kabat-Zinn makes this beautiful point. He says, you know, when, when you're low on the ground, it rewires you neurologically. You know, you're very used to standing up and sitting down and moving through the world with the head and the heart and the feet oriented a certain way. But when you take the time, even for 25 to 20 minutes in your day to get on your hands and knees and like twist and, you know, do weird shit. Cause honestly, asana is pretty weird, right? You're contorting your body and God knows what shapes. And suddenly your head is lower than your heart. If you have an advanced practice, you're upside down a lot. Um, and this forces you to reorient your, you know, like now up is down and down is up, or you, your center of gravity feels different when you're on your hands and knees. When you're lying on your back, you're able to access parts of your body um, that might have been cut off in walking or sitting or standing. That actually rewires your brain. It neurologically affects um, your, your chemistry. And this is good. You need, in the spiritual practice, you need to practice this kind of uh, neuroplastic plasticity kind of work. Because when you start meditating, it's going to happen a lot. But if you don't already have a foundational daily rewiring process, the rewiring will happen quickly, forcefully, and sometimes painfully. Um, because you're not used to rewiring, you know? So get into the habit of being on the floor, being upside down, crawling around, being weird in your living room, scaring your roommates, because that will make you feel a little bit like more experimental, um, more ready for changes. And the third reason I recommend an asana practice is because it's, it's a pretty good laboratory to see where you're at and where you're not, you know, because you can meditate. And the thing is, you'll never be able to verify my astral projecting, right? So if I talk to you about an experience I'm having in the astral, I could be talking out of my ass, you know? I could be totally telling you guys this stuff so that I can confer upon you some spiritual authority that I do not have. And that can be tempting to do if this is my livelihood. And here's the trap, you know? It's like people who sell you yoga will tell you all sorts of things. They'll say, oh, I've done this, I've done that, I opened all my chakra, I don't know. They'll give you all sorts of claims. And maybe, maybe, you know? But there's no way to verify that stuff um, in the gurus. It's hard to kind of verify, you know, you don't judge a teacher from what they say. You judge them through how they are or how their energies are interacting with you, you know. But it's while it's one thing to not know what's going on in someone else's mental or energetic practice, you yourself might have delusions about where you're at. This is so common. You're meditating and you feel like you're more peaceful than you are just because your life at that moment is not so crazy. But wait till the IRS calls and tells you about your backup withholdings. You know, wait till you get sick with COVID or something. Um, and then all your peace goes out the window. But you don't really know that until it happens, you know? So it's kind of hard to see where you're at and where you're not. And with other practices, like energetic practices or mental practices, um, you, th there's a lot of self-delusion that can happen, you know. Um, but with asana, the body does not lie. Uh, it does. It, I want to say it does because sometimes you can look really great in an asana, but actually inside have no spiritual um, understanding at all. But I mean in a personal context, when you're practicing asana and you're in warrior three pose and you're wobbling and you get so mad at yourself because for some reason you think you should be able to do it right all the time, uh, now you can catch yourself in a pattern. You know. So how you are on your mat is often symptomatic of how you are in life, but it's harder to catch in your day-to-day -day life. It's easier to notice when you're in your body on your mat. So I recommend an asana practice as a laboratory for you to meet yourself, mostly meeting yourself where you're not, you know? So you might think you're spiritual, but then what happens when you wobble or you can't do a pose, you know? Oh, most, more than anything, what happens when you get injured or you, you're really good at pose and you get injured one day, you know, and then what's gonna happen? So like that kind of thing, having a daily asana practice will really show you where you're not it'll really ground you. So it's mandatory. I, I actually even encourage do not progress further into this realm of spirituality without this asana practice. 
eh, maybe you will, you know, maybe you will. And maybe you should. What do I know? Um, but it just seems to me that it can be rocky footing. And this whole spiritual business might be more trouble than it's worth if you don't have that grounding, you know. Better to live in the sheeple life, you know. Better not to get up and walk out of Plato's cave if you're just going to trip and bash your head in the skull, uh, bash your skull in the rocks in the darkness, you know. Um, better to know how to walk before you get up and try to leave the cave, you know. <laughs> so do your asana practice. How do we do this though? Um, say you have 20 minutes to an hour. Say you have two hours. However much time you have, it doesn't really matter. You should do a couple of things in that time. So let's just say you have 20 minutes. Let's put aside 20 minutes. The first thing you want to do is this. Um, or I should say before that, I should back up a little bit and say you first want to expand your vocabulary of asana. You know, you want to um, get more words in your vocabulary so you can speak more sentences. Think of a sequence, an asana practice, 20 minutes as like a few sentences, you know. For these sentences to be coherent, for them to be beautiful and poetic, you better have good words, you know. So the poetry or the, the, the articulate nature of your asana practice depends on kind of building your compendium or your database. So for this, I recommend uh, The Light of Yoga, you know, BKS Iyengar's book. The Light of Yoga is a good book because it has all the pictures of asana in the book. Um, this can be hard though for self-study because, you know, you're looking at the pictures, he's got great instruction, but you're not able to see in your own body or feel in your own body um, any misalignments that are happening. So in the beginning of your asana practice, it is very valuable to find a teacher or work in a classroom with someone who, you know, can point out misalignments, but more than that, who can give you poses. So I recommend when you go to a yoga class, have a notebook nearby, try to be interested in the sequences that the teacher is giving um, and the poses, know the names. The teacher often, a good teacher will tell you the name in Sanskrit. You know, and Sanskrit is good because many different countries have different names for the poses colloquially. So utkatasan, fierce pose, chair pose, horseman's pose. These are all ways to describe utkatasan. Uh, utkata konasana, uh, some people call it goddess pose, you know, but in Sanskrit, you can standardize it. So learn the Sanskrit names of the poses um, and then just collect them, collect your poses. Try them out in your own body so you can understand them energetically. When you sequence an asana class, there are a few energetic considerations to consider. So I'm going to give them to you now. The first is you need to shift into your practice. So always start your asana practice with some kind of breath awareness. Shavasana is a great way to start an asana practice. If you start an apanasana with the knees and the chest and you're rocking side to side, bring in some breath awareness to just signal your nervous system that you are about to practice. Um, this can be as simple as a singing bowl, actually, like just give it one gong or a bell or something, something to tell you that, okay, now tell your nervous system, now we practice. So start like that. Start with some warm up poses. So some gentle hip opening, like um, uh, threading the needle, Supta Bado Konasana, which is when the soles of the feet are together and you're lying down in like supine butterfly pose. Um, hamstring opening is really good. Supta Padangushtasana, you know, and I, I'll maybe email you sequences or something like that. But in the back of BKS Iyengar's book, he's got a few sequences that you can kind of steal, take, which is great. But you want to start with a little warm-up just to open the hamstrings, open the hips. Then from your warm-up, you want to start to move slowly. Cat-cow is invaluable. A, a tantra teacher, I forgot the name, but a tantra teacher said, if you do nothing else in the day, do cat-cow. <laughs> It's great advice. It's because, you know, the spine is the center of your spiritual life, as you will discover on your own, the chakras and, you know, um, it's good to wake up the spine, create an electricity flowing up and down. So do your bidalasan cat cow, you know, move through a few sun salutations. So this is a great way to warm up. Any version, Surya A, Surya B, Surya C, any version of sun salutation is good because it gets you to link the breath with the movement. And that, I think, if you stop there, that's awesome already. Because if, if that's all you do, you're already getting the energy flowing. It's important to just run bullshit out of your system, hormonally speaking, you know, energetically speaking. This alone will kind of clean you out or purify you for spiritual practice. 
I recommend going a little further though. Um, this, you can think of this as like flossing or brushing your teeth. You know, you need your sun salutation so you can just keep clean. The moment asana becomes practice though is when you start introducing, in my opinion, standing poses. Standing poses like, and especially balancing poses, a tree pose, vrikshasan, um, padangushtasan, hand to toe pose, um, virabhadrasan three, virabhadrasan two, warrior three and two, um, garudasan, eagle pose, all these poses um, require strength in the legs. This is good because when you condition and tone your calves and hamstring, you are stimulating your sciatic nerve, which boosts your root chakra. So standing poses will really nourish your root chakra. You will be forced to distribute your weight evenly across the four corners of the feet. You'll notice your feet more. In fact, one of the esoteric meanings for the word Sikh, um, the Sikh religion, Sikh is one who is aware of his or her own feet. You know, a grounded one, a rooted one, rooted in their own being. So do your standing poses. And these build heat. They force you to confront yourself in moments of fear, especially when you're balancing. So do that. After your standing poses, um, I recommend using that heat to go into a backbend. I love backbending. A camel pose, um, upside down bow pose, ustrasan or urdhva danyarasan, that's all great. So those poses, you know, you're using your heat to do a backbend. The backbend will stimulate you, will give you energy, keep you motivated. And you need some of that. You know, you can see Durga is there on her tiger. She's riding a tiger. And Shiva is there dancing in a ring of fire. You need some of that energy to blow through your spiritual practice. Um, so this will give you what in Sanskrit we call viryat, which means enthusiasm. Funnily enough, this word is also translated to libido and semen. They're like, if you come too much, you lose your viryat. Um, and I guess that's referencing the state of like lethargy post-male coitus, I don't know. But viryat is deeper than that. It's the like vigor or enthusiasm. So backbends will give you that. But if you end your practice in a backbend, you'll feel edgy and anxious throughout the day. So it's important to have forward folds like uh, Pashimottanasan, westward facing fold, or even Gomukhasan, like uh, cow pose, you know, bowing, single pigeon, any pose that brings your belly to your thighs and your head down is good to do after backbend. Of course, you don't want to go from one extreme to another. So you don't want to go from upside down bow right into Pashimottanasana. Notice that there's two energetically opposite. Um, one is an intense backbend. The other is an intense forward fold. So you want to have a transition, maybe a child's pose in between the intense backbend and a forward fold. So start to think like that. Think energetically. After your forward fold, maybe a little hip opening. Maybe you'd like to do shoulder stand or legs up the wall pose. And then Shavasana. Always, no matter what, end your practice in Shavasana. Even if you only have eight minutes to practice in the day, whatever you do, put aside at least two or three minutes for a corpse pose in the end. In Tai Chi, or I should say in Qigong, they call this the Gong period. Qi is the energy. Gong is where the energy comes into. It's the receptacle of the energy. Without a Shavasana at the end of your practice, you risk losing the energetic effects of your practice. The Shavasana helps integrate what you did in your poses into the cells of your body. So really, really recommend have the Shavasana. Okay, so we've got this asana practice. You're doing it for 20 minutes, working up to an hour every day. Um, when should you do it? Honestly, anytime you can. You know, there are many scriptures that say, do it before sunrise, do it after sunset. And yes, these are ideal times to do it. Starting, starting your day with asana is one of the greatest gifts you can give yourself. Your whole day will feel different. Uh, it'll be great. But sometimes, you know, we don't have that luxury. You know, we've got exams and we've got commitments and do what you can, you know, do what you can. It's important that you do it. it to me, I, I found a way to get everything right at one point where I was like, okay, I knew how to uh, uh, create a routine that got me to a place, you know, and I was very happy, very smug about my routine. It became a trap. It became a golden prison 
because since I had to get everything right, it was to me a barrier of entry to my practice. So in times of my life that were a little more turbulent and I was traveling or whatever, I abandoned. I just like couldn't do it because, you know, if I was going to do meditation for two hours, I wouldn't do it if I didn't have those two hours, you know, but it's better to do something. So whatever it is that you're doing, um, you know, don't be too attached to the method. Don't be too attached to routine. Do when you can. The important thing is that you do it, you know. Um, but some, some things to note, try not to do your asana after a heavy meal. You know, um, try to have a maybe one or two hour gap in between meals. Also, be careful not to do intense energetic uppers like standing poses and back bends before bed. It can interrupt your sleep a little bit, you know? So that's just two things, you know, do with that what you will. So you've got your asana practice going on. After a while of your asana practice, you're going to want to introduce a pranayama practice or a breathing um, practice. This can be with your asana practice. And truth be told, when you're practicing asana, you will be introduced to many rudimentary forms of pranayama, such as samavritti, which is the same wave breath, where the inhale and the exhale are the same length. You'll be introduced to kumbhaka, which is the, the kumbhaka is the pranayama par excellence. And that sentence might have made no sense if you're just joining me. But kumbhaka is the breath retention. It's holding your breath. The word literally means pot. So it's when you're a pot. And there are two kinds. There's antara kumbhaka, when you hold after an inhalation. And there's bai kumbhaka, when you hold after an exhalation. In the Patanjali Yoga Sutra, it says yoga is retention of breath. In the Atharva Veda, it says yoga is pranayama. So these are very magical moments, very powerful moments. And as you continue to practice your asana, your breathing will deepen. I mean, naturally, your thoracic space opens up more. The muscles, your intercostal muscles in your asana practice become a little more developed. And you, you'll breathe more. Naturally, you'll just fill your lungs up more. So... Yes, it will happen naturally in an asana practice, but in time you might want to veer off and do a separate pranayama practice. Um, BKS Iyengar also has a great book called Light on Pranayama. The BKS Iyengar books are great because if you want to learn asana, you get light on yoga. If you want to learn pranayama, you get light on, you know, if you want to read the yoga sutras, light on the, light on the sutras or something like that, or light on the Gita. Or, and the best thing is his light of life, you know, at the end, his autobiography. Highly recommend. Great read. Um, but so you might want to cordon off maybe five, 20 minutes of your day, start of the day or end of the day to do pranayama. So these are going to be your two core practices. This is like your battering ram. We're not even talking about meditation. A lot of us are not ready for that practice yet. Um, you know, a lot of us are not going to benefit from just sitting through it right now. Because what's likely going to happen is we're just going to sit there and think, get frustrated at ourselves and say the spirituality business isn't for us. You know, um, meditation practice can be a deterrent. If not properly rooted in these preliminary energetic practices. Once you start to uh, do pranayama and asana, meditation is like knife through butter. You know, it's challenging, but it, it, it greatly is aided by these practices. So, you know, you do those two things. Maybe you start to introduce a little bit more meditation into your life. But I, I just want to stress that there is a difference between an activity being meditative and activity and, and one that is meditation. There are two different things. There's an informal way to meditate, which is to just bring mindfulness into washing the dishes or walking, practicing hatha yoga. You can be meditative in that. But this is not meditation in itself. Meditation is a very formal practice of stilling your mind, body, and breath in order to go past the periphery of your life. If you are engaged in the periphery of your life, it's kind of hard to go beyond it, you know? Um, so yes, meditation can turn into meditative mindfulness and meditative mindfulness can turn into meditation. But let's be clear, meditation is a specific thing. It's when you sit down and do a specific set of practices. And next week, we'll talk about those extensively. And we're coming to the end. I just want to say, 
in closing, you've got your asana and your pranayama. This will be like your battery. It will charge up your lower three chakras, which you're going to need for the journey in the higher realms. So if nothing else, do this every day. Then the third component um, is actually a set of five. And these are five attitudes you should ha have with regards to your intrapersonal relationship. What's that, Anisha? I was, I was just like talking to myself, but I was like guessing it was the yamas maybe. Good, yes, it's actually the niyamas. Oh. So it's true. The yamas in the yoga sutra are the foundation, the five yamas. It's how you start your practice. So I'm taking my liberty here and I'm saying start with asana, then pranayama, then the niyama, and then the yama. So the reason I'm saying this just to suit perhaps modern context is, you know, back in the day, it was easier to take vows, nonviolence celibacy you take these vows you know and that would help you in your spiritual practice now good luck getting a spiritual aspirant to commit to truth telling you know you're only allowed to tell it nah it's not going to happen so i'd recommend instead do the niyamas because the yamas are interested in interpersonal uh, relationships you know whereas the niyamas are intrapersonal relationships so if you have a strong intrapersonal relationship, that's going to bleed out into your day-to-day -day life, you know? So kind of man the ship first. So the five things that you kind of have to have in your toolbox, the first is uh, shaucha, cleanliness. So shower regularly, you know, cut the, do, do all the things you need to do. And shaucha for the yogi meant, you know, a lot of things like the neti pot, you know, investing in a neti pot is a great idea. It really helps clear up the sinuses. But whatever you need to do to stay clean, that's on you. You know, in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, there are six cleanliness exercises. Um, but, you know, that's your own exploration will show you. The general principle is try to keep your space clean, keep your body clean, eat, eat clean, um, and try to watch cleaner media, you know. So whatever that means for you, that's fine. Your body kind of knows and try not to stick to a diet because it's spiritual, but let your diet express your spiritual goals wherever they are at this moment. Some of you are eating meat and that's fine. The Dalai Lama eats meat, you know, it's fine. It's fine. It's just important that you go at your own pace, but you try to stay clean. The second one is contentment, sandosha. Um, this is a little harder, but it's generally a feeling of, um, you know the meme where the dog is in the fire and he's drinking the water and he's like, this is fine. Yeah, he's drinking the car. It's like that. You got to be that dog, you know, because as you're practicing spirituality, you're like aware that the world is on fire and your inner world is on fire. But you kind of have to be accepting and okay about that. So Sandosha translated a lot of ways, contentment, joy, um, moderation. But one way that I think I like to define it is acceptance, just accepting where you are now, um, just because it's, it's, it is where you are and accepting that you're here now and you're trying your best and you're doing everything right. And this is okay. You know, so uh, this is okay. -ness. You're going to need some of that. The third thing you're going to need is a willingness to suffer. You got to want to suffer, baby. You know, that's the thing. And it's okay because we're taking on suffering in our life anyway. You know, every time we fall into one of our patterns and our drama, like lots of suffering. So it's not like we don't like, so we love suffering. It's just be a little bit more careful what suffering you choose. You know, you can suffer in the fight with the partner, but it's much better that you suffer with a 6 a.m. alarm clock and a early morning cold shower. You know, take that suffering. That suffering is more functional for you. <laughs> so tapas is an attitude of enjoying discomfort. So choose suffering that's functional. Um, <laughs> it sounds morbid to put it that way, but basically it's an attitude of um, pushing yourself, going outside of your comfort zone. Suffering, I mean to say, is just going outside of your comfort zone. It's different from pain. In an asana, when you're doing a pose, pain tells you you're going too fast you're going too far. Pain must be listened to. You must back out. So you can definitely overdo this tapas business. But you know, you know the difference between productive discomfort and pain. So seek out productive discomfort. That's it. The one after that is um, Svadhyaya. And in closing, the last two, I just close class with this. Sorry to go over. Need another one minute. But in closing, this is a really good one, Svadhyaya. It means to study the self. 
So two ways to interpret this, either have a daily journaling practice, you cannot overstate how powerful daily journaling will be for your spiritual life. Marcus Aurelius was all about it, you know, and the, the Stoics, and it was just huge transformative practice. So it can mean journaling, writing in a journal. I recommend everybody go get one, like a nice moleskin or a beautiful leather thing that will inspire you. And then no matter what, your tapas is to do it every day. You know, there you go. That's perfect. Put the moon phase in there and track Mercury, whatever you need to do, do it, um, commit to it. Even if you write one line, I don't want to write today or stupid journal, whatever it is, just do it, you know, one line and then you'll start to write more. So that's one way. Another way to think of it is um, studying scripture about the soul. So self-study might not actually mean studying the ego or the personality. It might mean studying who you really are. And that's any book that turns you on. Ram Dass puts it in a great way. It's like you get a secondhand high off of reading or listening to talks or books in the spirit. So if someone is communicating something to you that's of the spirit, um, that's Fadiaya because something in you is resonating. You know, you're listening or you're reading and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, that feels, and it's awakening in you, um, remembrance of what you are. So Svadhyaya can mean studying scriptures or it can mean journaling. Finally, and we'll close with this, Ishvara Pranidhana. You must bring into your practice an attitude of humility and surrender. So there has to be an element of, I don't really know what I need. I know what I want, but I don't really know what I need. There must be an openness that accepts that we don't have all the answers and we can't at any given time see the whole picture. We can only see our limited view. So it's a certain kind of trust in our practice, a faith, a shraddha, if you will. It's a Sanskrit for faith, which is kind of like thinking, you know, I'm practicing and I don't know what the fuck's going on. Like, I don't know what, what is spirituality. You know, I'm just at loss for words. It's profound. That feeling must come into your practice. And that feeling of wonderment, of allowing yourself to be in not knowing, is the same feeling as devotion, reverence. So the word is reverence. I want to leave you with this. Maybe tonight you make a list of five or ten things that you hold sacred. What do you revere? What things invoke reverence in you? What is that word? What does it mean to be sacred? What does it mean to have reverence? You know, and then that, that spirit, if you can find reverence, it will permeate your entire spiritual practice like a fragrant flower. And it's the secret sauce, really. So these are the five niyamas. You do these three things first, asana, pranayama, and niyama. And we'll talk about the rest next week. Um, next week, we'll talk about pratyahara. Very beautiful thing that will happen to you when you do these things for about three months to six months. You do them every day. Something really crazy will happen. And a lot of you are already experiencing it now. So we'll talk about that next week. Um, that's all I really wanted to impart to you today. Thank you for a beautiful class. Um, perhaps we can close out with a final OM. Um, if you're near your device and there's not a lot of chaos around you, you're welcome to unmute and join me for this final OM. Or you're welcome to chant in your own space, muted, or just sit silently and receive the vibration. So we'll do one single OM, four syllables, ah, oo, ng, and silence. So everyone now at your own you know, leisure, bringing the heart, hands over the heart space, thumbs on the sternum, Maybe you think of somebody in your life right now to whom you want to offer this OM, maybe the election, maybe a part of the world like Armenia, maybe yourself, whatever it is, whatever it is. And hands over the heart, inhale to OM. May this practice serve you now and always. And may we remember that in times of political upheaval, spirituality flourishes. Rumi wrote poetry in the wars of Turkey, 
Hatha Yoga was developed in 13th century India when Kashmir was being invaded by the Mughals. And so too now, regardless of whatever instability might be happening in the external world, let us find our root and our center in an authentic core of spirituality and let our spirituality flow into our life that we may be nourished, protected, and a light to others. Namaste. Thank you for being my teachers. Thank you for another incredible episode of For the Love of Yoga. Find me at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish for more meditation and yoga classes. To get in on the discussion, you can find us every Monday night at 7 p.m. Pacific with Stay Home Yoga. You find us on social media. And also every Thursday night at 7.30 p.m. Pacific with Yoga World Heart. Have a beautiful day ahead. Oh. Shanti. Shanti.